Keish Lindell, and you're listening to Season 2 of Colorado State University History Department's podcast, The Land Grant Chronicles. Written and recorded by students in the History of Outdoor Recreation class, this season explores the crisis of outdoor recreation. This episode tells the story of a landmark piece of conservation legislation, the Pittman-Robertson Act. As the 1920s roared through America, both the population and the economy soared. With newfound leisure time and a post-war itch to venture into the great outdoors, workers and former soldiers developed a taste for a growing recreational practice, hunting. In 1920, some six million licensed hunters took to the plains and forests with their new factory-made rifles and bows, bringing home deer, elk, waterfowl, and other impressive game species. Though some people still relied on game meat as an important food source, more than anything, hunting became a way for people to escape the humdrum of daily life to connect with nature, and to show off wilderness skills. Unfortunately for wildlife, the impacts were severe. Overhunting, combined with drought, dust storms, and ever-increasing habitat encroachment, sent wildlife populations plummeting. White-tailed deer, once a common sight for hunters and non-hunters alike, all but vanished. The passenger pigeon, at one time the most abundant bird in North America, was hunted to extinction. Habitat ranges for many animals shrunk dramatically as people cleared forests and built on the land. America's wildlife was in crisis, and with it, the future of a beloved pastime. Here, at the precipice of ecological and recreational disaster, is where the story of a groundbreaking conservation act begins. By the 1930s, the idea of forging a monetary connection between hunters and conservation certainly wasn't new. Politicians, hunters, and conservation groups had long argued over the necessity of federal funding for projects like wildlife refuges and buying land for public hunting use. As much as hunters wanted to protect the wildlife that their sport relied on, no one could pinpoint a stable source of federal funding. That is, until Carl Shoemaker intervened. A hunter himself, Shoemaker had strong personal ties to wildlife conservation. He served as secretary of a special Senate committee on the issue and later joined the newly formed National Wildlife Federation, a powerful coalition of sportsmen, politicians, and conservationists. The driving mechanism behind the Pittman-Robertson Act came to light in March of 1937. While brainstorming solutions to the hunter's dilemma, Shoemaker and some colleagues remembered an old tax the federal government used to impose on firearms manufacturers during the 1920s. Cleverly, Shoemaker took that familiar tax and drafted a bill redirecting the revenue into a fund exclusively for wildlife conservation. Under the original bill, money from a 10% tax on ammunition and firearm sales would be collected by the Department of the Interior, then redistributed to state wildlife agencies based on the size of the state and the number of licensed hunters. Using hunters' dollars, states could fund projects that aim to recover and repopulate the very wildlife affected by hunting. This user-pay, user-benefit model would soon prove extremely effective. Shoemaker's ingenious bill quickly garnered support and needed only a small addition to maximize its effectiveness. Congressman A.W. Robertson, the bill's House sponsor, read it over and penciled in a short 29-word clause. In order to be eligible to receive valuable PR, or Pittman-Robertson dollars, states would also have to pass a law requiring all revenue from hunting license sales to be used exclusively for wildlife management. Together, Shoemaker and Robertson had effectively cornered the market. The two biggest revenue sources in hunting, license and equipment sales, now funneled money directly back into conservation. Shoemaker shuttled the bill through Congress with remarkable speed, and President Roosevelt signed the Federal Aid in Wildlife Restoration, or Pittman-Robertson Act, in September of 1937. 
Since then, the law has been expanded to include a tax on archery equipment and to pay for additional programs like hunter education and safety. In 2019 alone, the federal government apportioned over $670 million in PR funding to the states, all for the benefit of wildlife and hunters. PR has countless success stories. Using PR funding, research and management projects have helped restore American black bears to 60% of their original habitat range. Most states now enjoy productive and healthy deer hunting seasons, thanks to projects that monitor and support herd health. And if you've ever been bothered by a flock of giant Canada geese encroaching on your space, chances are you have the extensive PR-funded goose restoration programs to thank for that. In more recent years, however, PR has faced some major setbacks. Nationwide, hunting participation has been steadily declining. Between a lack of access to quality hunting grounds, overcrowding, and overall busier lifestyles, fewer people are willing to pay the price of licenses and equipment for a subpar experience. For PR, this means less funding in a time when wildlife needs it the most. Threatened by the effects of climate change and rollbacks to the Endangered Species Act, vulnerable populations like gray wolves and grizzly bears may need intervention to survive. But with fewer and fewer hunters spending money, PR dollars won't be enough to go around. Conservation groups, politicians, and hunters themselves have proposed a few options to reinvigorate the PR program, like amending the law to allow states to spend PR dollars on hunter retention, recruitment, and public image. In Colorado, for example, the Colorado Wildlife Council's Hug a Hunter ad campaign aims to spread public awareness about how the purchase of hunting licenses pays for conservation of the state's flora and fauna. Another solution might be to bring other recreationalists into the mix by implementing attacks on more outdoor goods. After all, more people than just hunters benefit from land and wildlife conservation, but as of now, they're footing a sizable portion of the bill alone. However we answer the question of conservation funding moving forward, it's vital to remember the key role that recreationalists, and especially hunters, have played in supporting America's wildlife and natural environments. Hunters were the heartbeat of conservation in 1937 and that relationship has only grown.